In high school, we were required to have so many elective credits. In my senior year of high school, there was one elective class that everybody was chomping at the reins to get. There was always a wait list for the class. And the class was the creative writing class. Most people saw it as kind of a blow-off class their senior year. But for a few of us, we were really excited about the potential of learning how to write good stories and narratives. And so my senior year, me and my friend Billy both signed up and were put on the wait list for this class. And after a couple of weeks of waiting, we found out that we had been enrolled with one of the best teachers at our high school. The first day of class, we showed up, and on each of our desks was a bandana. The teacher then went on to explain how, for the first 30 minutes of class, we would partner up, and one of us would walk around the high school wearing the, ba- the bandana, practicing to see what it would feel like to have been blind. Then after 30 minutes, we would swap, and our partner would put on the blindfold, and then they would walk around the school. So I volunteered to go first. My friend Billy was my guide, and he would walk me around. And the once familiar high school that had been for four years now became a foreign place. Stairwells that I thought I knew, like the back of my hand, became odd and scary. And we began to walk around the high school. But as the time progressed, I began to become more daring, more cavalier with my desires to see and push the limits of what I could do while blindfolded. So at first I would jump down a couple steps and then I would begin to climb up things. And then finally there was this point where I told Billy that when I got to a straightaway where it was clear to let me just run as fast as I could. So we began to walk through the hallways and finally we got to this portion of the high school and Billy said, okay, this area of the high school is clear. There's no one around. It's a straightaway. If you just run straight, you can run for about 30 yards. And so I said, all right. And I entered into a a racing stance Billy pretended to be a starter. He said, go, and I just took off, and I ran as fast as I could. And for a few minutes, a few seconds, it was just glorious. It was this thrill and fear of running as fast as you could blindfolded. But then there was something really interesting that I didn't learn about until I dated a girl in college that was uh, majoring in architecture. But in 1942, there was a horrendous fire at the Coconut Grove Club in Chicago. In 1942, over 492 people died because of this fire. And one of the main reasons that they said about this fire was that the doors to the entrance were revolving doors. And in the panic, everybody tried to rush out and they ended up blocking the doors and everyone died in this panic because of this fire. And so the U.S. fire codes were revised and reviewed and reformed so that every door has to open outward. So this is why you have those embarrassing moments when you go into a public entrance and you push instead of pull and end up looking like an idiot. We've all been in that situation. And so... Because of these reforms, all doors open outward. And so we flash forward back to the year 2005, and here I am running down the hallway. And one of my classmates at that time decided he needed to go to the bathroom. Because it's a public high school and a public building, the door opens outward. And so I run full speed as fast as I can into what is now an open door and knock myself out. I woke up 30 minutes later in the nurse's office with this powerful realization a revelation that I want to talk about today. And it's that I was not struck blind, but that I was struck while being blind. And in Acts chapter 9, we have this famous passage. People, even outside of religious circles, know the story of 
Paul being struck blind on the road to Damascus. They talk about their, their road to Damascus moment. But I think there's a nuance in the story that we miss, and it's not that Paul, that Saul was struck blind, but that Saul was struck while being blind. Because in the opening of the story, you see a man that is determined to persecute and kill as many people as he can. He is asking for papers to go and lock people up, to go arrest these people. This is the act of a man who does not know what is right or wrong, but he is convicted. And what I realize is some of the most dangerous people are the ones that are most certain, the ones that have these deeply connected roots, these desires that that what they do and what they see is right. There's actually a psychological test for this. It's called the Dunning-Kruger test. There's this realization that the more ignorant that people are about things, the more confident they can often become. And so there's this idea that the opposite of, of faith is not doubt, but it's certainty. And that when we move away from faith and into certainty, we have this realization that what we are doing is right, no matter what the cost. And so in this passage, you see that Saul is walking on the road to Damascus when the Lord appears and speaks to him. And what I love is Saul goes, who are you, Lord? It's the confession of someone that doesn't realize what they've been doing. It's the moment where Saul realizes he's been acting blindly. So what Jesus and the Christ does in this, this instance is not that he strikes Saul blind. He reveals how blind Saul has been. The physical blindness is a manifestation of his spiritual blindness. And this is what we realize was seen is that we often think we see clearly. We often think we see accurately. But the truth is we have to learn to see over and over again. That seeing is not a one-time thing. We rarely volunteer for sight. We prefer blindness. We would rather walk around not knowing, not understanding. But the story takes a more interesting turn because Saul is struck blind. He spends three days in Damascus, not eating, not drinking, in this state of blindness. And the story kind of moves on to a new character, and the character is that of Ananias. And the Lord speaks to Ananias. He says, I want you to go and see this man named Saul, and I want you to lay your hands on him, and I want you to heal him. And what I love about the story is that it's often presented as Saul was blind and then he gains his sight. But the story is actually that which is Jesus Christ is the only one that sees clearly and the rest of us are blind and we need the eyes of Jesus to see. Because Ananias says, I have seen and heard of this man and he has done evil things against your followers. So Ananias, once again, is actually confessing he has a blindness. He has this bias. He has this giant blind spot. And as anyone that will tell you that has played any kind of contact sport, blind spots will get you absolutely destroyed. When I was a senior in high school, I signed up and started playing lacrosse. I played four years of hockey, so I thought the skills would transfer over. And they do, except for one crucial one. And that crucial one is that in ice hockey, you can stop moving, you can stop skating, but you can keep moving. You can allow your momentum to just glide you. But in lacrosse, you don't have skates on. So the moment you stop moving, you stop moving, which is one of those obvious facts we all realize. So one of my first lacrosse games, I received the pass and that conditioning from hockey kicked in and I stopped running. I stopped moving. And the moment I stopped moving, I got absolutely leveled by one of the biggest guys on the opposing team and once again, knocked out. This is a reoccurring theme in my life is getting knocked out because of blind spots. And so there's this realization that our blind spots will cause us a great deal of trouble. And Ananias has this, this horrendous blind spot. The author, Jan Martel, he says, it is not on the outside where evil must be defended, but on the inside. For evil that has been released on the outside is evil that has come from within. And so you see Ananias, he has this bias, this position. He goes, this guy Saul is a bad guy. He is assuming that he sees things that God himself does not see. 
And God corrects him and says, you are not seeing the picture clearly. You are missing some crucial components. And I was reminded of my junior year when I was at school in college. We had a chapel speaker come speak to us. And I remembered being in chapel every day. And most of the days I couldn't tell you what we did. But this one specific chapel stood on my mind because the guy that came and spoke to us, he was a youth minister at a church in Denver, Colorado. And he was talking about how he had shown up for work on a Monday morning and he'd gone there early. It was the first day and he'd arrived early and he realized that there was someone else already in the parking lot at seven in the morning. And this was a person that was clearly living out of their car, clearly a person that had been through some tough times. And the youth minister at that moment just thought, I do not want to have to deal with this first thing on a Monday morning. And he realized that the car had not seen him. So he just slowly reclined his chair back and decided that he'd wait until the secretary showed up so that she could deal with the problem and that he would not. And he said that he reclined his chair back and then he ended up falling asleep. And after who knows how long, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, he heard a tap on his window. And the person that was obviously living in their car had seen his car and had walked over and tapped on the window. So he slowly raised his seat back up and lowered the window back down. And the lady asked a question that completely caught him off guard. She said, excuse me, but are you a Denver Broncos fan? And the youth minister looked at her and he said, I'm sorry, what? And she said, you're the youth minister of this church, right? And he said, yes. And she said, well, I was here Sunday and I was walking past your office and I saw some Denver Broncos memorabilia in your office. And I was curious to see if you were a Denver Broncos fan. And the youth minister said, yeah, like they're my favorite team. She said, okay, well, my husband passed away about a month ago and he collected Denver Broncos memorabilia his entire life. And she said, and I've got a car full of it, autographed footballs and cards that I don't want in my house anymore. And I was looking for somebody that I could give it to that wanted, that would take care of this memorabilia. And he looked at us at this point and he said, when I pulled up into the parking lot, I thought to myself, what was I going to have to do for this woman? And the woman turned it around on him and she said, what is it that I can do for you? And this is what our blindness often does is we look at and we see and blindness is, is possibly one of the most superficial senses. There was this French resistance fighter during World War II. His name was Jacques Lucerian. He ended up leading a resistance movement in France that was over 50,000 people. And one of the most fascinating things about this individual was that he was blind from the age of six. And Jacques Lucerian, he has this powerful quote where he says, Speed is another problem. Our eyes glide so quickly over things that we do not properly attend to them. Fingers do not glide. To feel a table is as much more intimate an activity than seeing it. It's this realization that that seeing is a superficial sense, but that touch, that moving past that, takes more of an intimacy. And so we see Ananias is guilty of the same sin that Saul was earlier. He is also has blindness, that he has these blind spots. But then Ananias provides the way forward. He gives us some hope about what it means for us to confront and challenge our own blind spots. And what he does is he prays. And what often happens is prayer is taught as a formulation of words, that you have to say these correct words, or you have to ask for these correct things. But as I've spent more and more time in my life, I realize that prayer is less and less about asking for the right things and more about seeing from the vantage point at which God sees. The author C.S. Lewis, he used to say that what you see depends a great deal upon who you are and upon where you are standing. So you could go to the Grand Canyon, but you can face the wrong direction and not see any of it. 
seen as a great deal depends upon where we are. This is one of the reasons that we named my daughter the name we gave her. That her name means eyes to see and ears to hear. It's this understanding, this confession to daily say, I don't see the full picture. I don't see everything. The poet Mary Oliver, she says, let me keep my mind on what matters, which is mostly being still and learning to be astonished. And this is what prayer is. Prayer is not one thing among 10,000 things, but it's the one thing by which we see 10,000 things. Good prayer, true prayer, always leads us to put first to put away sight and move into the beautiful and vulnerable place of touch. And this is what the final movement in Acts 9 teaches us, is that Ananias moves from blindness to true sight, and this true sight allows him to touch Saul. He goes and sees Saul, and he says, Saul, the Lord has sent me to you, and he places his hands on Saul. And this is what I realize that true prayer does, that true seeing as God sees, it allows us to reach out and it realizes to touch the people. The story concludes with Ananias healing Saul. And this is the one of the things that I find so captivating in the New Testament scriptures that is that as Jesus goes about and he goes about healing, he goes about healing in the most intimate way. He touches the people. He touches the sick. He touches the lonely. He touches the oppressed. He does not walk around like pointing his fingers going like, you're healed, you're healed, you're healed. He gets his hands dirty. He moves in and he touches those people with whom he loves. He is moved with compassion because this is the thing about sight. You can look at someone that you cannot stand and despise, but you cannot move and touch them with love and affection. Touch requires us to move into a space in which we care for people, in which we love people. That is something that sight does not afford. This is why, as we mentioned earlier, Zach Suzerian, he says that, that eyesight is that of speed, but touch allows you to attend with a different activity, to move quickly into something. There's this book series that I love, and there's this scene at the very end of the series where this character is a diplomat, and he's trying to negotiate peace between these two rival tribes. And he's sitting at a campfire, and he is trying with all of his heart to convince this one tribe that this other tribe wants the same things. But there's this language barrier and he's having a hard time conveying this deep emotion, this deep thought. And finally, the chieftain of the tribe gets up and he walks over to the diplomat and he comes behind him. And the diplomat feels his body tense as he's waiting for possibly the knife to plunge into his back. And the chieftain slowly places his cheek against the diplomat's chief the diplomat's cheek, and he says to him, he says, I see as you see, diplomat. He goes, my eyes look out in the same direction that your eyes look out. And there's this beautiful moment where the diplomat realizes they're both looking in the same direction. And this is what prayer allows us to do. If we're willing to sit still, to stand still long enough, to not run blindly into opening doors, but to sit still and allow Christ to come beside us and put his cheek beside our cheek and allow him to slowly and gently turn our face so that we can see from the vantage point from which Christ looks out, to see the way Christ sees, to appreciate and love the people that Christ loves and allow that circle of love to continue to grow and encompass all things. There's a prayer that I want to close with by Fyodor Dovietsky from the Brothers Karamazov. He says, love people, even in their sin, for that is the semblance of divine love and is the highest love on earth. Love all of God's creation, the whole and every grain of sand of it. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. 
Love the animals, love the plants, love everything. If you love everything, you will perceive the divine mystery in things. Once you perceive it, you will begin to comprehend it better every day. You will come at last to love the whole world with an all-embracing love. Amen.